Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, we're glad that you're here. And if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis and chapter number 41. Genesis chapter number 41. It's the first book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you could find one under a chair near you and you could take that Bible and turn to page number 31 and you would be at Genesis chapter 41. I think most of us are familiar with the musical Fiddler on the Roof and one of the key characters in Fiddler on the Roof is Tevya. Tevya is a poor Jewish milkman and he has five daughters and they're family is experiencing hardship in life. And hardship has been something that Jewish people have known throughout the centuries. And in Fiddler on the Roof, there's one particular scene where Tevya decides that he is going to have a little conversation with the Lord. And it goes something like this. Lord, I know, I know that we are your chosen people and all that. But just once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? And you know, we can identify with that as hardship comes into our life. And we could say, just once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? The reason why we can identify that is, with that is that hardship is called hardship because it's hard and hardship can wear us down and hardship can discourage us. Hardship can lead us to having this sense of defeat in our life because part of what happens when we're in the midst of hardship is we have this tendency to take our eyes off of God and put them onto the circumstances. That can happen to anybody. Even significant spiritual leaders can have that process of taking their eyes off of God and putting them on the circumstances. Even the great reformer, Martin Luther, experienced that. And one particular time in his life, circumstances were piling up against him, and he had just experienced another very dismaying setback in his battle for truth. And his response to that was to go hole up in his study for a number of days. And Luther became withdrawn. He became moody. He would come out of that room only for meals, and then he would quickly return to it. And everybody in the family knew what was going on. And after this had gone on for a number of days, his wife, Katie, walked into his study one day, and she was dressed in black, from head to toe. And Luther looked at her and said, are you going to a funeral? And her response was, no, since you're acting like God is dead, I thought I would come in and mourn with you. How true it is that we need someone to remind us sometimes that the hardship we're going through is still part of God's plan in our life. And what we're going to share this morning is of value to all of us. Maybe today you're in the midst of difficulty, you're in the midst of hardship, 
or maybe you are headed to hardship in the days and the weeks ahead. And we're going to have this struggle just as Luther had to take our eyes off of God and put them on the circumstances. We're going to be tempted to operate in our life as if God was dead. But let me just remind you, I need to be reminded of this, that God is very much alive and God is very present and he is sovereign and he is in control and he has a plan and purpose in all that he allows. We've been going through a series of messages we have entitled Hope Through Hardship, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And the title we have given for today's message is this, God's plan has purpose. God's plan has purpose. And we're going to simply just look at two things today, the twofold outline. First of all, we're going to spend some moments looking at God's purpose in Joseph's life. And then we're going to take a few moments to reflect on God's purpose in my life. God's purpose in your life. So it's very simple where we're going today. Let's begin by looking at God's purpose in Joseph's life. Now, we have taken a break for a couple of weeks because of Easter events, so I want to do just a little bit of review. You remember the story of Joseph, that at the age of 17, he is betrayed by his brothers. At one point, he thinks they're going to execute him. But eventually what they do is they sell him to a traveling caravan of slave traders. He ends up being shackled and has to walk hundreds of miles to Egypt where he is sold on the slave block there. Potiphar, who buys him, he proves to be very faithful in his servant service to Potiphar, but he ends up being falsely accused of sexual assault. He is tossed into prison falsely. He spends years, years in prison. While he's there, he helps out the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh. He says to him, when you get out, would you remember me? And he said, I'll absolutely remember you. But he forgets all about Joseph for two years. And so as we come to Genesis chapter number 41, as we look at these events in this chapter, we now know that Joseph, according to verse 30, or rather verse 46, is 30 years old at this point. In other words, he spent 13 years in hardship. But rather than act like God is dead, we see a man who is living by faith. He's living by faith in God's presence in his life. He's living by faith in God's providence in his life. He is living by faith in God's promises in his life. So with all of that as a review and a context, let's begin to work our way through chapter 41. Look at verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile River. And from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Verse 3, then behold, Seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, and they were ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the original seven cows on the bank of the Nile. Verse 4, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and then Pharaoh woke up. He woke up and had the same reaction we have sometimes. Man, that was a weird dream. 
And then he dozes off again. Verse 5. He fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, this time seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk. And they were plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, another seven ears that were thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke. and was like, oh my gosh, another weird dream. And then verse 8, it says, now in the morning his spirit was troubled. Now that's, that's an understatement. He had had these back-to-back, very ominous dreams. They were weird with a capital W. And he's bumfuzzled by it all. He knows these must mean something, but I have no idea what the meaning of these dreams are. So in the rest of verse 8, what does he do? He sends and he calls for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. He gets all the wise guys together, you know, all the counselors of the mighty nation. And he says, these are the dreams that I had. Who can interpret them? And nobody could do it. Now, you have to know, as the leading ruler of the world of that day, he was irritated over that. And I believe he got a little attitude going about it. He basically said, you know, I got to know this or there's going to be hell to pay. Now, when that attitude got conveyed, there was this guy who was part of the team of advisors who was the chief cupbearer. And he thinks to himself, you know what? I kind of recognize that attitude that I got to know or there's going to be hell to pay. And he knew what it was like when Pharaoh had been mad at him and there was hell to pay. And that could mean prison for the whole group or it could mean worse. You might have your head cut off. So he decides to speak up. You know, it's like the little chief cupbearer. Pharaoh, um, could I just bring something up for a moment? I want to make mention today of some of my own offenses, some of the own mistakes and and sins that that, that I actually committed. He he said, you remember, Pharaoh, when you were furious with your servants, uh, with with me and, and with the chief baker, and, and you put us into prison. You, you remember when that happened? And, and he goes on to, to talk about it. He, he says that we had a dream on the same night, the, the, the chief baker and myself, and we, we dreamed, and we had different dreams. And there was, in verse 12, this Hebrew youth who was there in prison with us. He was a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And, and we were telling him about these dreams, and he interpreted our dreams for us He got a perfect interpretation for both of those dreams. And just as he interpreted them, verse 13, to us, so it happened. And, you know, Pharaoh, you restored me to my office, but remember you you hanged the chief baker. So what does Pharaoh do? Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon And when he had shaved and and changed his clothes, I mean, he was dirty, he was grimy, he was smelly. And and they got him all cleaned up and and clean-shaven, and they gave him new clothes, and he came to Pharaoh. Now, stop for a moment. Do you hear the irony in this story? I mean, Pharaoh is the most 
powerful person on the face of the planet. And yet, he is not in control. Who is in control? God is in control. And his sovereign providence is active. And you know what's going to happen? Pharaoh is going to do exactly what God planned for him to do. He's still going to have his own choices in the matter, but God's sovereign providence rules over all of that. So, Joseph shows up, clean and spiffy. Verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I love Joseph's response in the next verse. He then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Even in the midst of all of the hardship that he was having in his life, 13 years of it, we see the moment he steps into the light, he's displaying a mindset of wanting to honor the Lord. God gets the credit. We see it in that verse. We see it also in verse 25. He's going to say, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. We see it in verse 28. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. We see it two times in verse 32. It is a matter that is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. It tells us something about Joseph's heart in that even with all the hardship, his mindset was to honor the Lord. Now, in verses 17 to 24, basically what happens is that Pharaoh describes the dreams to Joseph. Same details we've already seen, so we won't look at those verses. But look at verse 25 of chapter 41. After hearing everything, Joseph now says to Pharaoh, verse 25, Pharaoh's dreams are basically, even though there were two of them, they're really the same dream about the same message. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows stand for seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are standing for seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, here's the the, the lesson. Seven great years of abundance are coming in the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance of those first seven years will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. It will be very severe. Now, as for repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice... It means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. It it would be very much, if we wanted a comparison, like the United States of America without the EU, without Russia, without China, without Japan the most powerful nation on the earth. And their economy 
was fully built around agriculture. And when you have an agriculture economy, even a year-long drought could devastate it. But this, the seven years of drought and famine, notice verse 30. It says, the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will, in the New American Standard, ravage the land. That word in the original language is also translated in the Old Testament, annihilate, demolish, exterminate. This was really strong language. Seven years in their economy would pulverize it, lead probably to the collapse of the empire and the termination of Pharaoh's reign. Now, just stop for a moment. Try to put yourself there. Seven years of famine are coming, and they're just going to potentially pulverize. It's going to be so severe. It's going to just annihilate, demolish, just exterminate everything economically. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure that when that gets stated, there was what? Dead quiet in the palace. How long that went on, I don't exactly know. But Joseph speaks up with a clear, bold proposal in verse 33. He says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. This will be the solution. And let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then... Let them gather all the food from these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it and let the food become a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now, there is a gap that exists between verse 36 and verse 37. There's a, there's a gap. He makes this bold proposal. And so what happens is there's this royal huddle, you know. Pharaoh calls everybody together. says, we got to talk through this. Let's have a little discussion about this idea that he threw out. Look at verse 37. It tells us that some kind of a confab went on because in verse 37 it says, now the proposals seem good to Pharaoh and to his servants. See, they had a little discussion about all of this. And then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? And there's another gap that occurs in the events here. And you can imagine with with Pharaoh, they said, you know, they talked over the idea. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. All right, Pharaoh is saying, "Um, where can we find a guy like that? Hamadi, what do you think? Where do you think we can find? I I don't know anybody like that. Sendi, what do you think? Can we find a guy like that? Tariq, what do you think? Akil, what do you think? And every one of them were drawing a blank. I, I don't know where we could find somebody like that. And then somebody goes, uh, Pharaoh, what about that Jewish Joseph guy? I mean, after all, it was his idea. And you have to believe that Pharaoh, when you're talking about doing what he's about to do, he wanted to check up on this Joseph guy. 
I have no doubt that he called in the chief jailer for a little while and said, tell me about Joseph when he was in prison. Tell me about everything that he did there. And he probably had heard that he had been a slave to Potiphar, and he called Potiphar and said, I want you to tell me, what was he like when he was running your household? Fill me in on all of that stuff. So there's a gap that exists there. And then we come to verse 39. Joseph, rather Pharaoh, makes his decision. So he says to Joseph, since God has informed you about all this, and there is no one so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house. According to your command, all my people will do homage only in the throne. I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he let him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before Joseph, bow the knee. And Pharaoh set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said, verse 44, to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Men and women, that is the most profound 24-hour promotion in all of world history. There has never been anything like that. You're asked to step out of the prison cell, and the same day, you're now the second most powerful man in all of the world. And Joseph is given by Pharaoh geographical control of the most prosperous nation on the planet. You will be over all the land of Egypt. He is given by Pharaoh supreme authority. He he says to him, verse 42, here, take my signet ring. With that, you could authorize the purchase of anything. It was Pharaoh's personal platinum MasterCard. And then he gave him the royal garments, and he put on, I don't know really what it was, but it was the royal gold necklace on him. Joseph was given prestige and privilege. He said to Joseph, you're going to ride in the second chariot. You know, bro, you're going to be in the second limo. You're going to have your own secret service. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to run ahead of you in the car, and they're going to shout out, here comes Joseph. Everybody honor and bow your knee to him. He was given total reliance by Pharaoh in verse 44. He's basically saying, even though I'm the Pharaoh, whatever you say in this arena goes. We will follow everything that you have to say. Now, men and women, that's astonishing. But it has the unmistakable aroma of God's sovereign providence. For 13 years, God and his sovereign providence had been developing Joseph. For 13 years, his sovereign providence had been at work. There had been dreams given to the chief baker and the chief cupmaker. There had been dreams given to to Pharaoh himself. And now we're learning for the next 14 years, God is going to direct the weather patterns. He's going to say, I'll tell you exactly what happens for the first seven years. I'll tell you exactly what happens for the next 14 years. You know, we could use that kind of insight here in central Oklahoma. Because we have the best technology in the world, we do the best that we can with our weather predictions, but they just don't get it right all of the time. But God in his sovereign providence knows what's going to happen for the next seven years. 
And he knows what's going to happen for the next seven years after that. And in Joseph's life, you have to see this, he's basically at the summit right now. And when you look down from the summit, he, he sees this long and winding road that was laced with 13 years of hardship. And as he's standing on the summit, he is remembering that during those 13 years, God squeezed the selfishness out of his life. And God squeezed the immaturity out of his life. And for those 13 years, God was equipping Joseph, equipping Joseph to manage people, to manage budgets. And as he stands on the summit and he looks back at that winding road, he realizes for 13 years I've been learning about how to trust God's promises. For 13 years, I've been learning about how to rest in God's presence in my life. For 13 years, I've been learning how to live by faith. God uses hardship to shape us. Robert Browning Hamilton wrote these words. They're they're very true. The longer you've lived life, you'll know they're very true. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Look at chapter 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went all through the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty in the land, he brought that everything was brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and he placed the food in the cities and he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. And thus Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance. It was like the sand of the sea until he stopped even measuring it for it was beyond measure. They ran out of paper. They couldn't even write down all the records of how much grain there was. It just blew their computers out. And then look at verse 53. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all of the area around there. But in Egypt there was bread. So When all the land of Egypt was famished now because of the early years of the famine, the people would cry out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said, what? Go talk to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And then the famine spread really over all of the region. And Joseph opened up the storehouses and he sold to Egyptians. But also, verse 57, people came from around the region to Egypt to buy grain. And eventually, the famine becomes severe in the land of Canaan and Jacob's family shows up in Egypt. God's plan has purpose. And the first thing we said we were going to do today is look at God's purpose in Joseph's life. And part of that purpose in his life was to preserve the family of Israel. 
But let's talk a little bit about God's purpose in my life and in your life. When we are in the midst of hardship, there are no random events, there are no accidents, there is no chance. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians, that's you and me, that they are never in the grip of blind forces, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. What this really means is that when we are in difficulty and when we are in hardship, we are called to do something. And what we're called to do is to live by faith. To believe that God has purpose even when we can't see it. God's plan always has purpose. I love what Steve Farrar has written. He's basically brought a little imagination to the scene, and he, he says this, imagine when Joseph was first tossed into prison, tossed into the dungeon, imagine that God came to him and said something like this, now Joseph, listen to me, I know you are hurting, and I know that you don't understand why this has happened, I know this is devastating for you, so I'm about to do something I don't normally do, I'm going to go ahead and tell you why I put you in here, ready, here's the scoop. Before long, you're going to be running this jail, and I will give you favor with the chief jailer, and he will turn everything over to you just as Potiphar did, and you're about to learn things in this place that you couldn't learn in Potiphar's household, and that's why I put you in here. Before long, two men who work for Pharaoh will be thrown into prison. They will have dreams, and you will interpret their dreams. One will live, and one will die, just as you say. And when one man goes back to work for Pharaoh, you will ask him not to forget you, but he will forget. I will make him forget you. You'll be in here for two more years. Are you tracking with me, Joseph? At the end of the time, I'll make Pharaoh have a dream that will scare him to death. He will call his advisors together, but none of them will be able to give meaning to his dreams. Then I will make the cupbearer remember you. He will tell Pharaoh about you and the dream you interpreted, and Pharaoh will then summon you, and you will stand before him and tell him that I'm given seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine, and you will instruct him to appoint a man to administrate the prosperity so the world can survive the famine. He will appoint you to the task and make you the second most powerful man in the world. After that, Joseph, I will bring your father and your brothers to Egypt. You'll be reunited with them. You and your brothers will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And through your family, I will bring my son into the world. He will be born of a virgin and will give his life a ransom for many. That's why you're in here. (laughs) You got it? Whoa. Can you imagine, I mean... (laughs) Can you imagine Joseph even processing that? Wait a minute, hold on, slow down a minute. What's this about the second most powerful man in the world? And this thing about your son being born of a, I don't, you know, I mean, that's just not what God, I mean, had to short circuit him to begin with, but of course it raises all these other thousand questions. It's, It's just not what God does. God doesn't do that. Now, now sometimes in our life, 
we eventually see part of the purpose. That's what happens to Joseph. He actually, in his lifetime, gets to see part of the purpose. You know, why did I get cancer? I don't really know fully, but I have in my life seen part of the purpose, and that was I was able to minister to other people who got the same diagnosis for the same cancer that, that I had. Sometimes we eventually get to see part of the purpose, but God's purpose is not always clear in this life. You know, when you come to the book of Hebrews, it's the, the chapter on faith. And as you work your way through Hebrews 11, you'll see a, a number of people who went through hardship. You see Noah, and you see Abraham, and you see Sarah, and you see Moses, and you see Rahab, and you see Gideon, and you see David. And all those people experienced hardship, and they lived by faith. And in all their situations, they were eventually able to at least see part of the purpose of the hardship in their life. But you know, Hebrews 11 mentions some others. The others. Verse 36 says this, others experienced mockings and scourgings. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death with the sword. They went about being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and caves and holes in the ground. And these did not receive what was promised. In other words, the purpose for their hardship was not clear until they were in the presence of the Lord until they were in heaven. Vance Havner lost his wife to disease, and it was a devastating loss in his life. And later on, he wrote these words. He says, when before the throne we stand in him complete, all the riddles that puzzle us here will fall into place and we shall know in fulfillment what we now believe in faith, that all things work together for good in his eternal purpose. Then, no longer will we cry, my God, why? Instead, our alas will become alleluia. All question marks will be straightened into exclamation points. Sorrow will change to singing and pain will be lost in praise. If hardship is a riddle that puzzles you, no matter when it becomes clear, the key principle of the word of God is that we are to live by faith. You see it in the Old Testament taught. You see it in the New Testament the righteous shall live by faith. We see that in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. If you go back and look at that, that's in a context of extreme hardship. The righteous shall live by faith. We see it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Again, if you look at it, a context of extreme hardship, the righteous shall live by faith. God's plan has purpose, and the righteous shall live by faith by faith. One of my favorite stories of all time is a story of Andrew Murray. 
And it was a, a time when he was in the midst of a very, very, very painful hardship in his life. And he was staying at someone else's home. And one morning while he was eating breakfast in his room, his hostess told him there was a woman downstairs who was in great trouble. And knowing of Andrew Murray had wanted to come and see if he had any advice for her. So Andrew Murray handed to his hostess this piece of paper that he'd been writing on, and he said to her, just give her this advice that I have been writing down for myself. It may be that she'll find it helpful. And this is what he had written there. In time of trouble, I say, first, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this perplexing place, and in that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, in his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. Therefore, I say, I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, and four, for his time. God's plan has purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. Oh, we desperately need the perspective of the word of God. And we realize, Lord, we're too often like Tebya. Just once, couldn't you choose somebody else? What we need to remember is to learn that the righteous shall live by faith. And we know that we may see part of this purpose now, but it may not be clear until we're face-to-face with Jesus. But in the meantime, we can remember that I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, four, for his time. Lord, we just really want to trust you because you want to develop in us faithfulness, you want to develop in us righteousness, you want to develop in us holiness so that we can honor Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Let's just close our time today by really singing that that prayer together.